Psalm 6. So we're looking at this psalm this morning, and this psalm is a prayer for those who have been crying themselves to sleep at night. Verse 6, all night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. For some of you, this might be your situation right now. For others, we've experienced it in the past. And for many of us, we know someone going through it. And the question is, for those of us who follow Jesus, where is God at times like this? And how do we talk to God? How do we relate to God when we're going through this sort of experience? Or how do we help someone else trust God or find comfort in a, in a season like that if they're going through that? And then also, what do we dare to expect from God at a time like this? So those are some of the questions that this psalm helps us to address. And I don't know how you feel when you're, you've been going through a painful time of suffering, but the psalmist feels like God must be angry with him. Verse 1, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Now, why does the psalmist feel this way? Well, before I answer that question, let me point out that the reason the psalmist is so upset and so distraught seems to be that he's very gravely ill. Now, it's hard to know for sure because the psalms are so poetic and they speak in images and metaphors. And so the psalms can use sickness as a metaphor. They can use healing as a metaphor. They can use enemies or battles as metaphors. But listen to verse 2. O Lord, heal me for my bones are in agony. And verse 5, no one remembers you when he's dead. Who praises you from the grave? And so it sounds like the psalmist is deathly ill. And assuming that this is the case, let me point out two details about the psalmist's condition which might not be obvious to us unless we stop and think about it. And the first is that I don't know what's medically wrong with the psalmist, but I do know that he can't go to the ER And he can't get a battery of tests to find out what's wrong. Whatever medical care is available to him, it's primitive and it's likely, much of the time, ineffective. Imagine you you wake up, you're you're in excruciating pain. or, Or you start feeling disturbing symptoms, like maybe part of your body starts feeling numb. Or or maybe you can barely breathe, you can't catch your breath. And And you can't Google your symptoms, you can't call an ambulance, and when you do see a doctor, if the doctor can't help you, there's not much you can do but hope that your symptoms go away by themselves and that you feel better. And sometimes they do go away, but sometimes you just get worse. And that's the situation of this psalmist who lives in the days long before modern medicine, and so there's not much, humanly speaking, he can do about his condition. He's suffering, he's he's struggling, and there's no solution except God. Listen to how he describes the situation. Verse 2, he's faint. Verse 3, his soul is in anguish. And by the way, about this word soul, in the Hebrew language and understanding which this psalm comes out of, soul is not some immaterial spiritual part of you that goes to heaven when you die. It's rather your whole person, your whole whole self, your totality, yes, the internal spiritual part of you, your body as well, your whole self. That's the Hebrew word soul. The the psalmist is saying, my soul is in anguish, my whole self is in anguish. Then verse 5, he contemplates his death. He's, 
He's not sure he's going to survive this. And we'll come back to this part of it. Then verse 6, he's worn out from groaning. Verse 7, his eyes grow weary with sorrow. This isn't a head cold we're talking about here. It isn't even the flu. This guy is seriously ill. And he's suffering and he's in pain and he's in anguish. And you get the sense that it's been going on for quite a while. And I know some of you have experienced this sort of illness. The closest I've come was the very first time I had a major anaphylactic allergic reaction. You, many of you know that I'm very allergic to sulfites. And the first time I reacted violently, I didn't know that's what, what was happening. I didn't know why I was reacting. I just knew that suddenly I felt deathly ill. I had extreme gastrointestinal distress, probably the worst I'd ever had. It felt like my insides were exploding. The pain was unbearable. I was physically shaking all over. I felt literally like my body wanted to come apart. And all I could pray was, God, please don't let me die. Because I thought in that moment I might be dying. And it lasted for maybe 20 minutes and then slowly it began to subside. But can you imagine experiencing something like that, not for minutes or for hours, but for days or weeks or even months? For the psalmist, this has been going on for so long and it's so bad that that he thinks he may not recover, he may die. And this leads to the second detail of this poor guy's situation. In the time of David, who this psalm is attributed to, those who worshipped the Lord didn't yet have a clear belief that there was an afterlife. That came later in the biblical revelation. They didn't seem to know about a future resurrection yet. Or if they, they did, it, it, if they did believe there was something after death, it was kind of fuzzy and hazy and unsure what that was. If you read the early books of the Bible up through the Psalms, you get an occasional reference to something beyond the grave, but it's often not clear and it's not definite. Mostly those early books focus on this life and trusting God in this life and seeking God's blessing and favor in this life. And so notice what the, psalm says, the psalmist says as he contemplates the possibility of this illness taking his life. Verse 5, no one remembers you when he's dead. Who praises you from the grave? So he's facing the prospect that this is it, that his life may end, and that's it as far as he knows. He doesn't seem to have a strong sense of a hope of a resurrection. But he's not ready to die. He has so much more living to do. And so he's in anguish, he's troubled, he's shaken, so much so that even though he's a grown man, he's crying himself to sleep night after night. And then on top of it all are his foes. Verse 7. My eyes grow weary with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. And it's not clear how his foes fit into this. They're mentioned again in verse 8. Away from me, all you who do evil. And in the last verse, all my enemies will be ashamed and dismayed. They'll turn back in sudden disgrace. It seems that somehow, while, while the psalmist is down, while he's flat on his back, his enemies are using this to their advantage. Either to ridicule him, to rub it in, or, or maybe because in the case of David, he's a king in a very religious culture, and so his, distra- his detractors might be saying publicly in the press, in the social media of that day, so to speak, how can God still be with David? You know, that's what they're tweeting. How can we respect his leadership anymore? Look at him. Surely God's rejected him. 
And so maybe they're trying to take advantage of his weakness and to plot against him. Whatever they're doing, it adds to his pain. It adds to his worry. It adds to his suffering. And he's just at an all-time low. So let me ask you a question. How do you pray at a time like that? What do you say to God? How do you view God? Well, to get back to where we began... For starters, the psalmist feels that God is angry with him. Now, I'm not sure why. I don't know if he already thought God was angry with him because he did something that he shouldn't have done. And and then he got sick, and because of his guilty conscience, he thinks this is God's punishment. Or, I don't know if he just got sick, and, and it's so bad that he assumes God must be angry with him, though he doesn't know why. Or maybe it's not that thought through. Maybe he just feels so bad and his condition feels so powerful and all-consuming that it just feels like God's anger. He doesn't know how else to describe it. We don't know why he says this. And we probably shouldn't make much of a theology out of it. Because whatever he thinks the connection is between God's anger and his sickness and suffering, it turns out not to be the final word for him anyway. He may start there as he begins to pray, but... And, and you, may, you may experience something so bad and so terrible in your life that you think God has abandoned you and cast you aside and given up on you or maybe that God's angry with you. But, but this view toward God is not where the psalmist ends up by the time he gets done praying. And as we learn to pray from the psalmist's prayer, we learn that we're not meant to wind up there either. Because what the psalms are meant to do is to teach us how to pray to teach us how to approach God, how to view God, how to think about God in various circumstances. And in this case, it's how to pray when we're crying ourselves to sleep at night. When our soul is in anguish, when we're worn out from our groaning. And so let's look at three lessons that this psalm teaches us about praying to God and relating to God, especially when we find ourselves crying to sleep at night. First, God allows or even invites us to complain, question, and argue with God in prayer. Notice what this prayer is not. It is not flowery. It is not formal. It's not even polite. What is it instead? Well, it complains. I'm faint. And Doug did such a good job reading it, didn't he? I'm worn out. I I cry all night long. I'm in anguish. It also questions, how long, Lord, who praises you from the grave? It argues, have mercy, for I am faint. Heal me, for I'm in agony. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Are you going to let me die, God? What benefit would that be to you? The psalmist laments, the the psalmist cries out, the psalmist wrestles with God. And not just in this psalm, there are dozens of psalms like this. You see, it it isn't a mark of irreverence or disbelief to complain to and, and question God when you pray. In fact, it's actually just the opposite. It's a mark of faith and reverence. Now, I'm not talking about the person who complains to God but doesn't pray to God. And I'm not talking about the person who questions God but doesn't believe in God. And I'm not talking about the person who grumbles to God but doesn't obey God. 
No, I'm talking about the person who believes in God and prays to God, but is struggling because what they're experiencing doesn't live up to what they expect from a good God. You see, the reason the psalmists complain and question so much is because they have so much faith in God. They have such high expectations for God's character, God's goodness. The polite person who who believes in God but never questions and never complains, who just receives from God's hand whatever comes along, probably doesn't really have that much faith. You don't find the psalmist praying like that, and you don't find Jesus teaching his disciples to pray like that. No, what does Jesus tell his followers? He he tells them about a friend who, who comes at midnight and pounds on the door, waking up his neighbor while his neighbor's asleep to get what he needs. And Jesus tells his disciples about an oppressed widow who keeps coming back to the judge, begging for justice until she's worn the judge out. Jesus says, when you pray, ask, seek, knock. Because the one who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks finds the door opening up. Jesus is encouraging his followers to have what the psalmists have, which is a holy discontent. A strong sense of who God is and what we can expect from God. And when life doesn't match up, they call God on it. They complain, they question, they argue with God about what God can and should do. Let me ask, do you know well God well enough to do that? When our kids were young, there was, there was one of our children in particular, who taught me a lot about prayer. I remember one time this child was about one and a half years old, and they discovered that Anne had taken grapes out of the fridge, and this child loved grapes, so they asked for some. And and we said no, because they'd already had a bunch of grapes that day, and and we wanted some too. (laughs) But they kept asking five or six times. They, they, grapes, I want grapes. Um, they didn't say it just with all those words. They were one and a half, just grapes, grapes, grapes. And, and we just kept saying no. And, and then they climbed up into their booster seat at the table and they pointed to their bowl, which was still on the table, and they said, grapes, bowl, just to make sure we knew where to put them. All my kids are wondering which one of them it was. <laughs> they were ready to dig in. They fully expected that they, we were about to give them grapes. Uh, we didn't. And, and so, so then they continued grapes please like so nice and polite and with such a cute expression it was really hard to resist (laughs) now let me ask you would a child like with that kind of persistence drive you crazy (laughs) well here's what struck me this child is teaching me how god wants me to pray this child has the courage and the boldness to ask for whatever they want because they know their place in our family They know they're loved, they know they're accepted, that they're a member of our family, and that they have a special and a privileged place in their family, and so they can ask for what they want, and it's safe to do so, whether they get it or not. (laughs) And, And they knew that they had parents who loved them and wanted to give them good things. And so let me ask us, as God's children, do we know that? Do we know that? Do we know that we have a good Father in heaven who wants the best for us? Well, this leads us to the second lesson that the psalm wants to teach us. And that is, 
that it teaches us when we pray to focus on God and on who God is. More so than on what we need. Notice the word Lord. It's repeated eight times in this short prayer. And you might know when your English Bible has that word Lord with small caps, L-O-R-D, it represents the name Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. It's the personal name, the commitment name of God. And only the people that God has already committed to by covenant call him by this name. Kind of like only my wife calls me husband. Now, husband isn't a personal name. It's a title, but Anne has made it into a personal name. Only Anne says to me, husband or husband, (laughs) depending on the situation. (laughs) And when she says that to me, she's saying something different than when she calls me Dick. Because when she calls me husband, she's saying something that no one else can say. She's saying, you are mine alone, and we have a unique relationship. It's, it's the same when God's people talk to God, and they use this personal covenant name, which is capitalized L-O-R-D in our English Bibles. I like the way a friend of mine, Daryl Johnson, puts it, describing what this, this name Yahweh means. He says, in Hebrew, it suggests, I am, or I am here. But it suggests more than that. It suggests, because it's a covenant name, I am here with you, and I am here for you. I am here with you. That's about presence. And I'm here for you. That's about provision and protection. I am your covenant God. We enjoy a committed relationship. So I am here with you, and I am here for you. That's who the psalmist is praying to. His covenant God, the God who has promised to provide for him, the God who has promised to protect him, the God who has promised to be faithful to him. And this is what we find in verse 4. The psalmist prays, save me because of your unfailing love. And this phrase, unfailing love, is also covenant language. It's a translation of the Hebrew word chesed. And... um, Hesed means covenant commitment. It means faithful, committed, covenant love. When you make a covenant with someone in that day, in that culture, it's hesed that keeps that covenant together on the part of both parties. Each party pledges to be faithful. They pledge to seek the best for the other. They pledge to love one another. They pledge hesed. And so the psalmist is saying, remember, Lord, covenant God to show me chesed. Show me covenant love. Show me covenant faithfulness. Save me because of your chesed. Save me also, verse 2, because of your mercy. You're a merciful God. Just have pity on me. Have compassion. Look on me and be merciful. See what I'm going through, God, and feel sorry for me. After all, God, I know you're merciful. I know you are compassionate. I know you're faithful. Your love is unfailing. So how can you let this go on? How can you let me keep crying myself to sleep night after night? Turn. Step in. Heal me. Save me. Rescue me. Notice how the psalmist is focused on who God is and what God is like. And, and what the relationship is between him and God. And based on that, he knows what he can expect. 
And that's why he complains, and that's why he questions, and that's why he argues, because what he's experiencing doesn't line up with, it doesn't jive with what he knows he can expect from God. He's not resigned to suffer with dignity. He's not piously saying, oh, well, Lord, if this is my plight, I accept it from the Lord's hand. No, and this leads to the the third thing that this psalm teaches us about prayer, and that is that by the end of this prayer, the psalmist expects God to step in and answer his prayer. Aren't verses 8 to 10 striking? The psalmist goes from complaining and begging to courage and defiant confidence. Verse 8, away from you all who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. It's startling. Let me ask you, what happened between verse 7 and verse 8 to make him change his mood so quickly? In verse 7, he's still moaning and complaining. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. And then suddenly in verse 8, he's sure God has heard him. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. The psalmist now knows God is going to answer his prayer any minute. So what happened between verses 7 and verse 8? Well, this shift is so sudden, and it happens a lot in the psalms, and so scholars have developed theories about it. That's what scholars do. And the most common theory is that this guy is at the temple praying, because we know psalms were used in the the prayers of the temple. Um, and, And he's praying at the temple, complaining to God, And the theory is that the priest gives him an oracle, basically a prophecy from God, saying that God will answer his prayer. Kind of like Hannah, if you know that story. She was at the temple. She was crying deeply because she wanted a child. And Eli, the priest, assured her by God's inspiration that she would have a child. And so she left the temple praising God. Is that what's going on here? Well, maybe. But... I'm not aware of anywhere in the Psalms that mention this fact. So it's, it's purely a conjecture as far as I can tell. The other possibility is that the psalmist just knows God so well and has such trust in God that he knows he can expect an answer. As he prays, as he reminds himself, as he refocuses himself on what God is like and what he can expect from God. After all, God is faithful And if God is faithful, and if God is there with him, and for him, and if God loves him, and if God is compassionate, then God is not going to let him die prematurely. After all, verse 5, among the dead, who proclaims your name? No one. Who praises you from the grave? What good would it do for God to let one who proclaims his name and praises him go to the grave? Again, here's the thing about the the psalmists. You you don't find them when they pray hiding behind phrases like, if it be the Lord's will, or thy will be done. Lord, maybe you could just help a little, just, just a little, but only if you really want to. Often that's how we pray, but that's not how the psalmists pray. And that's not how the Bible teaches us to pray. No, the psalmists shake God down. They, they argue, they complain, they expect God to be faithful, for God to be present, for God to provide, for God to protect. Do, do we know God like that? Do we know God well enough to talk to God like that? To be honest, I'm not where the psalmists are yet. But I'm learning. And they're teaching me. 
That's what they're meant to do. These sorts of scriptures are, are slowly nudging my expectations and my faith to expect more. So for those who cry themselves to sleep at night, what does this psalm teach us about how we can view God and how we can talk to God and what we can expect from God, especially when things are so bad that we're crying ourselves to sleep? Well, if that's you, just the fact that this psalm and many like it are in the Bible tells you that God knows about you and God cares. And God wants to teach you how you can talk to him. You don't have to put on a brave face. You don't have to pretend it's better than it is, especially in church. No, you can cry. You can question. You can even argue with and complain to God. God invited, is inviting you to by giving you the words of these psalms to pray. Because God is faithful and loving to God's own covenant children. And because God is merciful, God is compassionate. And so you can ask God why he's not acting in line with his goodness. And, and you can expect more from God than maybe you thought possible. And so in conclusion, a couple practical takeaways that this psalm teaches us. First, when you are talking to someone who's suffering, don't give them pat answers. Don't tell them that they've sinned and God's angry with them. And don't tell them that this trouble's for their good. And don't tell them it's God's will. God will work it for their good. But don't tell them that it's God's will for their good. Instead, be, before you point them to God's character, which is what this psalm encourages us to do, give them space to question and to struggle and to complain to God. And if all this makes you uncomfortable, then, then don't say anything. Just be with them. Because why do people give pat answers and say not very comforting things? Usually because they're uncomfortable with the other person's suffering. So if that's you, be silent with them and don't be that person. Second, if you're the one suffering, this psalm gives you space to struggle and to question and to wrestle. You don't have to put on a fake smile and act pious and peaceful. But this psalm also encourages you to pray and to press into God. To remember who God is and to beg God to close the gap between what you are actually experiencing and what you can expect from God. Remember how, how different the psalmist's frame of mind is when he begins praying and when he ends praying. He goes from thinking God's angry with them and, and then to just complaining and crying out and questioning to knowing God will save him. He goes from anguish to hopeful expectation. That's what prayer does. It changes us. It, it changes our view of God. It changes our expectations. And it's a process. It doesn't happen right away. At least for me. <laughs> And I don't know about you, but I need to learn better how to pray the way the psalmist prays. Let's pray. God, there are many hard things we don't explain or we don't understand and that you haven't fully explained to us. We thank you that you've given us prayers in the Bible to teach us how to pray, how to relate to you in the psalms, 
in the Gospels, in the epistles of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation. Thank you that you love us and you want to have a relationship with us. Thank you that you teach us how to pray. God, if there's anyone here who is crying themselves to sleep tonight, I pray that you would draw them close. You would remind them of who you are, that you are there with them and for them, and that you would hear their cries. Amen.